welcome to the December issue of BBRO Bcast. I'm Francesca Broom, your host and Knowledge Exchange Manager for BBRO. There's been a rather strange campaign this year, what with a good start and a soggy part of November and into the cold snap of December. So we're hoping that you've all fared reasonably well so far and that maybe some of you are even looking forward to next year's crop. And for that, those of you that have been growing cover crops will be interested to hear what we're talking about this month on cover crop destruction and the use of glyphosate. So with no further ado, let's meet our guests. So I'd like to welcome along two guests for this month, and that's Georgina Barrett from BBRO and Roger Bradbury from Bayer. And we're actually going to discuss a little bit about cover crops and their destruction, which is why we've brought you in, Roger, to tell us a little bit about the use of glyphosate and um, the work going on at Bayer. Because I understand you are now the lead for glyphosate. Yes, that's right. So uh, thank you for having me along. So, uh, yeah, I'm Roger Bradbury. Um, I work in um, support of the commercial part of the business as a technical specialist. So particularly looking after the sugar beet crop. Uh, the Bayer Roundup portfolio, and, and um, in the area of new business models, so sort of new technologies, new digital tools that we're looking to evaluate and validate. And you've been involved with sugar beet for quite a while, though, haven't you? Uh, yes, in uh, sort of on and off through my career, I've been involved in in the sugar beet crop in a in a number of, uh, of um, roles, and uh, yeah, was quite heavily involved, obviously, in bringing Conviso One as a as a new technology to the market as well. Now, certainly for us at BBRO, we're seeing a lot more cover crops coming into um, the industry. And in some cases, great. And in others, I know people have had some issues. So, George, this is work that you're looking at. Do you want to just give us a brief background as to, to what you're finding with cover crop use? Yeah, thank you very much, Ches. So we've been talking to a lot of different growers. Uh, and some of you will be aware that we put out a cover crop survey um, a couple of months ago. So we've been collating some of the information from that to understand really what cover crop varieties people are using and the underlying reasons for those decisions. So it's often driven a lot by soil type and what else is going on in the rotation. And then that brings us all the way through to how people are transitioning from their cover crop use into the sugar beet crop. Um, Some people do this very successfully and they have a a good protocol they follow every year. Other people have ups and downs and they're still on a journey uh, and other people haven't even taken that step because they know the risk. So us at BBRO, it's important for us to understand all these different approaches people are taking um, so that we can try and support people when they're making decisions on how to use cover crops, when to use cover crops and how best to manage them. And it is the destruction of them that is causing the main headache for everybody, isn't it? And that's where I know you've done some work as well, Roger, about destruction and the the best times to destruct a crop. So if, if someone's looking to use glyphosate and they want to be drilling sugar beet, what do you think is best practice? So I think one of the key, well, the key learnings really, for, and particularly for a, a crop like sugar beet, which is obviously small seeded uh, and the need to obviously get a good uniform established crop is that um, is to plan ahead early. So really begin that stru- destruction of the cover crop. And again, it depends sort of as as Georgina said, really, on on the species mix that you have as part of that cover crop. But, you know, particularly if you've got really big, bulky cover crops, then absolutely the destruction and and, and early removal of those to to sort of lead to a seed bed where you've got, you know, you're going to end up with a really good opportunity for that crop to emerge and establish as quickly as possible is vital, really. So getting that glyphosate, if that's what you choose to use for destruction of your 
cover crop, getting that on early is, is really important. And I think also just being considerate of the species that you have in that mix and sort of accepting that, you know, there is an inherent difference in susceptibility of those species to glyphosate. And so you do need to sort of check and use the appropriate dose in order to get the best efficacy. Because obviously, you know, at that time of year when you're looking to destroy your cover crop, conditions are probably not optimal to be applying it in terms of temperature and um, application windows. So the glyphosate will not necessarily work as quickly as it might in, in the summer, for example. So just need to give consideration and time for that glyphosate to, to do the job to the best of its ability. So you say about the species mix, there are harder to destroy weed that you're aware of? So, I mean, the, the most difficult species really are, are the legumes, some of the sort of deep rooted brassica weeds, you know, and it, and it may be for you know, even the highest rates of glyphosate would perhaps struggle with giving adequate control of those. So, you know, it may be appropriate actually that you need to use something with also a, a co-formulated mix, for example, that might have some 2,4-D to, to help um, manage some of those those particularly difficult species. It's interesting that Roger mentions particularly legumes because we know that legumes are very popular before sugar beet and cover crop mixes. And the other most, probably the most important species or most uh, popular species is oil radish. In the cover crop survey we've done, that comes out as a very popular option. Obviously, that's because a lot of people are grazing um, their oil radish and they've got other uses for it. But yeah, it's deep rooting. It's hard to get rid of. And if you combine that with a mix with a legume, um, then you are going to potentially be more challenged in in your use of glyphosate um, and be having to having to use it in an optimal way to get good kill of the cover crop. And you mentioned, Roger, that where there's a, a large, say, green biomass there, got to obviously destroy early. But what about bringing other methods of destruction in to work alongside glyphosate? I mean, we, we haven't specifically done work in that area, but obviously there are sort of alternatives that growers can use, whether that's, you know, bringing in some sheep to graze or a crimper roller or those sort of types of technologies and mechanical type of intervention, if you like, to manage those cover crops. But again, you know, there's not necessarily one blueprint or one size fits all. You know, again, it depends very much on the species mix and and to some extent the weather as well, quite reliant on, you know, some some winter frosts also to, to manage some of those um, maybe easier to kill species. And you mentioned there about the cold weather. Obviously, for most things, it's slower because the plant's not taking up the chemical quite as quickly as we would like. Um, have you done any work as to see how long it takes at certain temperatures for the destruction process to commence? So I mean, I mean, typically in the in in the, in the sort of you know grasses tend to respond most quickly really to glyphosate, but even under cold conditions they they will be slower. So it may be up to sort of twenty eight days, even even longer before you see some really um, strong effects from the glyphosate. So. Um, again, it's, it's sort of being patient, you know, planning ahead in a sense to, in order to make sure that um, you are now enough time for, for the cover crops to um, to be sufficiently terminated. Yeah, and certainly with sugar beet, we do need to plan ahead because we want to see the destruction at least six weeks before we're drilling, don't we really, George? Yes, exactly, Ches. Um, we want to see that destruction at least six weeks before because of the green bridging risk, particularly if you have uh, brassica species in your cover crop mix, which a lot of people do. Uh, there's a massive risk of transmission of the virus yellow diseases from those species into the sugar beet. So making sure we have destruction of all that green matter before we get into the sugar beet crop really is setting us off to the best possible start when it comes to reducing virus infection. 
and it's not just virus it's um, overwintering pests and, and other diseases as well isn't it yeah yeah there are other threats as well particularly uh, you might have an issue say with slugs uh, there were some issues this year where um, we'd had some quite cereal heavy cover crops that had led to a leather jacket problem going into the sugar beet crop so any of those carryover sort of pests and diseases um, can be an issue really uh, and then there's also obviously that functional situation of to till when you've got any form of green matter left on the surface you want good kill off uh, so when you go in and you're trying to create that fine tilth that we want for a good sugar beet seed bed that we maximize the opportunity to achieve that and there are a number of growers that are perhaps looking at cover crops for the first time in your experience this is probably one for both of you is it easier to destroy a cover crop to like first time use or if it's a piece of land that's had um cover on it for the last three four years is that easier does it make any difference at all success of your program to control the cover crop will be more linked really to to really the the the, the dose of glyphosate you've applied uh, the conditions in which you apply it and and also to some extent or and quite heavily actually influenced by the quality of the application you make it's all very well being recommended a dose of glyphosate to control a cover crop but actually you need to deliver that to the target and it needs to reach the site of action in order to have best effect so the application part of that process is really critical and key really to get the glyphosate to where it's needed so it's not a case of one nozzle will do everything. Yeah. No, and again, I think, you know, there's more than one way to, to, to do the job. But I think you need to think really about the, the architecture of your the canopy that you're trying to manage. So, again, I think our experience would also say that actually you need to avoid flat fan nozzles, really, with glyphosate. You're losing too much of that spray through through drift so you're losing obviously glyphosate off target which is not good from a, a sustainability point of view but also you're losing that product away from where it needs to to land you know we and we also know that potentially angling those nozzles to get the spray into the canopy particularly if you've got a, a species at a range of different levels is, is helpful and obviously those larger droplets which tend to tend to come from the sort of air inclusion type of nozzle do tend to carry more momentum they tend to get better and penetrate further into the canopy than than uh, a flat fan for example and also when it comes to the rates again it is adjusting rates to the species that's there going back to the point i made earlier around that inherent susceptibility glyphosate is a, a non-selective herbicide but not all plants are equally affected by the same dose rate and so it's about selecting the dose rate that's appropriate. And, you know, where you have a, a species mix, it's probably obvious to say, but actually the most difficult species in that mix is the dose rate you need to sort of be targeting. Them. And with so many growers now looking at cover crops and mixes, and do you have any preferences to what's there? Is there something like a, a an ultimate mix that you would prefer people to grow for ease of destruction? I think, you know, the, the destruction side of it is obviously part of the story. But I think fundamentally for cover crops, it's about what you're trying to achieve. You know, there's a whole range of different aims that, you know, growers have or reasons that growers have for, for establishing a cover crop. And we need to, I think, that's your starting point, really understand what you're trying to achieve with growing a cover crop. And destruction is important, but but yeah, it's probably um, probably not the most important factor. And that's where you're doing a lot of work at the moment, aren't you, George, looking at different types of cover crops and the mixes to see what works best with sugar beet. 
Yeah, that's why we started out. There's work we want to do in the future, but that's why we started out with a survey because there's there's no one better to go to than those that have experience. We can't possibly do research that captures all the different cover crop species, um, different soil types, different bits of equipment people have on farm. So just understanding what people are doing and trying to get trends of what is and isn't working and then going from there is really important for us. But it it's not a one size fits all. And that even stands from field to field, depending on the field history, depending on what you're trying to achieve, depending on what your weed pressure is, your, you know, your pest pressure. You do need to be adaptable with your approach to cover crops. Uh, it's not necessarily I'm going to do the same thing year in, year out. For some people that does work, but for others, they have to think ahead. And for some people, it may be a case that sometimes a cover crop before beet isn't suitable. So it's just understanding why people make these decisions and, and, and trends of why they are or aren't going for cover crops. And then we can sort that information out and feed it back to growers. And I know you're going to give a, an overview of the results from the survey at the Beat Tech 24 in February, aren't you? Yeah, we're going to have a breakdown of uh, we had over 300 responses, lots of interesting feedback. Uh, and I think it's important to mention we didn't just survey people that have used cover crops. We've also surveyed people that have used them and then chosen not to use them anymore and people that haven't even tried to use them in the first place so understanding why people have made those decisions how we can help support those people and i don't want people to feel like they're being forced down the cover crop route it may not be possible for some people if you're on really heavy land cover crops can be very challenging and very difficult and maybe they aren't the right approach for you but then it's understanding what other options might be out there and how best to manage your land between harvest and, and the sowing of the sugar beet in the spring so there's a lot for us to cover but it's really important that we do engage with growers and we understand what's going on on farm and have you any thoughts as yet as to where the work is going to lead you in the next so two three years i think it's the understanding of where people aren't getting cover crops to work particularly people as I've just mentioned, on heavier soil types, you're never going to get a system that suits everyone. I do understand that. And I've said that before, but it's understanding what other options there might be for people. It's also trying to encourage people to to give cover crops a go, feeding off the information we have. So we might find on heavy land, you know, people are always using a certain cover crop variety, which suggests it's more likely to be successful. So it's making sure we provide the information for people to then, if they do want to give it a go, being the best possible position for that to be successful. And Roger, for glyphosate, I mean, there's been a few touchy moments, if you like, where we're not sure what registration is going forward. But at the moment, we're quite confident that we've got a few more years of use left, haven't we? Well, we've had the recent good news around, obviously, the reapproval or the reauthorisation of glyphosate as an active substance within Europe. So, you know, that and that has been reauthorised for a period of 10 years. I think we just need to remember here that obviously since the EU exit, we define our own path locally within within GB. We are now separate to that process and, and the reauthorisation of glyphosate as an active substance is not due for renewal locally until December 2025. So I think it's just important to remember that. But, but absolutely, it's a really important tool for growers and, and, and I think growers understand that. And I think, you know, it's important also that growers follow the stewardship guidance which is available. Maybe this is a good opportunity just to remind growers that RAG have produced some or republished if you like back in 2021 some guidance around minimising the risk of glyphosate resistance in the UK. I encourage people to go and look at it. So on the AHDB website if you look up the RAG, the RAG section of that website, um, you'll, you'll find the guidance there. And it just really gives you some uh, practical guide about how to use glyphosate responsibly. The information was really put together on the back of 
perhaps some irresponsible practices that have that have happened in some areas of the industry in the past. You know, really high use in intensity, lots of glyphosate applications to to stale seed beds, for example, um, not necessarily using the appropriate doses. So it's just trying to remind people of the actions they need to take on their own farm in order to preserve the efficacy of this important active ingredient because we are fortunate locally we don't have any confirmed cases of resistance yet but that doesn't mean it won't happen you know the risk is real you know we we're obviously aware of cases elsewhere in the world where we do have resistance cases to glyphosate even within europe so there are cases of italian ryegrass in spain and italy which have very um, strong resistance to glyphosate and, that, and those are the species, really, Italian ryegrass and some of the grassweed species, where we're most concerned around resistance development first. Yeah, really encourage people to to sort of use the active ingredient responsibly, you know, limit the amount of applications they, they make to a stale seed bed. And that's what goes back to the comments I was making earlier around dose rate for cover crops. Absolutely the same rules apply really around you choosing the most appropriate dose rate for the size of the grasses that you're trying to control you know as grasses get larger they're more difficult to control um, and as we think about managing um, grass weeds in the spring particularly as you enter as some of the grasses start to enter that stage of stem extension then absolutely we know glyphosate is less effective at that time so controlling grasses when they're when they're at smaller growth stages is really important and and obviously trying to avoid transplanting blackgrass plants or, or grass weed plants, I should say, into a establishing crop and also really important because then it makes the sort of job, well, almost impossible really to, to manage with the selective chemistry. Yeah, just really encourage growers to see, sort of seek out the guidance, have a look and, and, and pay attention to detail really and, and be vigilant. So monitor what's going on in your fields and if you see some suspicious plants that, you know, seem to have survived a glyphosate treatment then try and understand why that's happened. You know, quite often that's not as a result of resistance is other factors, but try and get to the root cause of why that's happened. And, and certainly don't be tempted to spray those sort of surviving plants again with another dose of glyphosate, because that is a, sort of a, a sure route to, to problems in the future. And we really can't emphasise that enough. It is down to individual growers to take that responsibility on because they'll be the first ones that see the impact on their own land, won't they? Yes, absolutely. You know, weeds are quite different. You know, unless you import the weed seeds from somewhere else, from another field or machinery or in bay, in, in um, straw or something, then then absolutely you sort of master of your own destiny to some extent. And we've been exceptionally lucky because glyphosate has been around for quite a few years. There's not many chemicals that have had the longevity that that has had in the industry. Um, can you remember when it was first brought to market? So, yeah, I mean, glyphosate actually will be celebrating or Roundup, if you like, the first brand that arrived in the market came in 1974. I mean, it will be its 50th year um, next year. So quite a milestone, really. And um, many farmers will have grown up with it and be very familiar with, with the active substance. Um, it's really important we're not complacent about it and we use it responsibly in order to minimise the risk of resistance development, particularly. Yeah, and there are not many chemicals that are a 50 years old but still delivering yeah absolutely you know we're seeing decline in efficacy of some of the selective herbicides that we have available in in some of the crops now we're also seeing products being lost through changes in the regulatory uh, landscape so you know glyphosate remains a really pivotal cornerstone if you like of an integrated weed management program it's obviously interesting and from a commercial perspective obviously you have your link with Bayer but it was interesting the conversation we had the other day Roger about not all glyphosate products are equal that I think I went on pesticide 
Gov the other day just to, out of interest, look at just how many products have glyphosate in and it's pages and pages and pages. So it's an interesting one on what is out there and, and things maybe to consider when you're selecting um, what product you're going to use. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's lots of, um, you know, glyphosate is a, is a sort of a commodity product now. So absolutely lots of different um, products available. But but actually delivering that glyphosate and getting it into the plant and where it needs to be, and particularly given the conversation we've had around some of the difficult conditions, you know, in the sort of late autumn, winter time when you're trying to manage some difficult cover crops. So once glyphosate is in the plant, essentially glyphosate is glyphosate, but delivering that where it needs to be is, is really important. So, you know, there's two sort of key constituents of that is, is really around the salts, because glyphosate as an acid is essentially insoluble in water. We've got the IPA, the isopropyl amine salts, which are probably present in most of the glyphosate formulations people are familiar with. And in the Roundup formulations particularly, you'll find they're all based on potassium salts. And in our dry product Roundup Powermax, that's actually an ammonium salt. But salts in themselves don't have any direct impact on efficacy. But actually, the size of those molecules is really important, which is why you'll see a lot of the isopropyl amine products are sort of a 360 gram product, because the size of the molecule does limit the amount of glyphosate you can actually load into that formulation. And you need to remember, you also need to leave some space in the formulation for the for surfactants, because they're a really key part of the product getting it into the plant. And so that's one of the benefits of the potassium salt. So whilst it's not really having any direct impact on efficacy, because it's a smaller molecule, it allows you to load up those formulations with more glyphosate, which is why potassium salts tend to be higher loaded formulations. Um, but it also allows you to put much more surfactant into that formulation. And that's the bit that's really important to get the glyphosate into the plant. And the way that those surfactants sort of react to and interact with the leaf surface is important because essentially, particularly if you're trying to control plants that have deep tap roots or or particularly large, you need to get the glyphosate into those roots. Uh, and in order to do that, you need obviously the, the plant to be sort of metabolizing and moving that, translocating that herbicide down to the site of action. And so you need those surfactants to work in quite a benign way on the leaf surface to avoid interrupting the physiology of the plant to move that glyphosate. Whereas some of the, some formulations can have quite a disruptive effect on the leaf surface. And so that sort of shock effect, if you like, does inter interfere with the physiology of the plant. And actually, so it does limit then the translocation to some extent of glyphosate. And so that's why if you take the Roundup product products as an example, you do tend to see a more reliable and consistent level of efficacy across a broad range of conditions. So it's actually probably worth growers to think about what they're actually using and maybe even try different products in their own area to see what works best for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I would always come back to the point that around dose rate, you know, dose rate of product that you're applying and, and dose rate of glyphosate that you're trying to get into the plant to do the job you need it to do. Because we often get questions around, you know, use of additional surfactants or, or, or fulvic acid has been a common one. And actually, there is no substitute for an appropriate dose of glyphosate. It may be appropriate to use an additional surfactant with your glyphosate-based product, but absolutely do not use that surfactant as an excuse to cut the dose rate because you will deliver a suboptimal level of efficacy. So you're disappointed in the result, possibly, but also yeah. when we think about the conversation we've just had about resistance management, suboptimal efficacy is really, really bad from a resistance management point of view if you're not managing those survivors in some other way. 
and avoiding them setting seed. Dose rate is you know fundamental to to getting the best activity. So tailoring that dose rate to the um, to the species and to the size of plant that you're trying to control is really important. And particularly in the spring, we do avoid applying during that stem extension phase of growth because essentially the glyphosate is moving in the wrong direction. It's moving upwards in support of the developing stem and ear and actually moving away from the roots. And so that is what accounts for the poor level of efficacy that people can experience in the spring when, when they're applying in that stage of growth. So, Roger, we've already covered a little bit about the, the RAG principles, but have you got any thoughts or can you go through the best way that growers could be looking at managing grass weeds or in the best use of a glyphosate product? So, yeah, no, absolutely. Just a, a good opportunity for a sort of a summary, if you like, of the, the best stewardship guidance. So, so really, I think we've talked about all of the points, but but it, but in summary, I mean, really, it's about choosing the correct dose rate um, for the weeds that you're trying to manage in the field and also the size of those weeds. So that's also an important component. And remember that, you know, weeds are best controlled when they're small, when the root systems are also relatively small. It's about remembering that if there are some survivors in the in the field from an application of glyphosate, absolutely do not apply a further follow-up application to those same surviving weeds. You know, use some alternative method of destruction in order to, to manage those survivors. That's really important. And really, I'd encourage growers to sort of focus on their application practice, because again, that can be quite influential around how that glyphosate is delivered to the target. So, so focus on things like, you know, forward speed, the nozzle choice and, and the droplet spectrum that that is going to produce. Is it appropriate to the target you're trying to control? Um, think a little bit about water volume and the conditions of application. And just, just remember that, you, you know, you, the, the risk of resistance development um, is real for glyphosate, particularly in annual grass weeds. So Italian ryegrass particularly. This is an important area just to just to sort of keep front of mind, really, when using glyphosate across your rotation, because, um, you know, one, once you've lost efficacy, you know, you that 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 will become, as we know from elsewhere in the world, a real a real problem for for grass weed and and, and broader weed management. So this is actually the December podcast that we're going out, and being December, we've obviously got Christmas um, will be here as well. So although we wouldn't be recommending people to have a, a a tub of glyphosate underneath their Christmas tree, that might not be a good idea. But what would be under your Christmas tree, Roger? My Christmas list would be. Um, you know, some better weather for the spring, really, to allow growers to in order to, you know, we've had a torrid time this autumn. And um, yeah, we need to put 2023 behind us and really uh, hope for um, some good cropping conditions for, for, for next season. I think that'd be the wishes of, of most of growers. And and George, have you got anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, a nice bottle of whiskey to add to that to um, <laughs> get through the colder months that we need to, to get some control of the cover crops and the aphids as well. Maybe, maybe uh, rather than whiskey to drown your sorrows, we'll have some bubbles to celebrate the end of it. What has been a very good year in sugar beet, and uh, hopefully the start of a new one. Thank you ever so much, both of you, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Ches. As mentioned by George, cover crops are going to be just one of the topics that we covered by our beet tech events in February. That's the. 6th of February at Newmarket Racecourse and the 8th at Belton Woods in Lincolnshire. At the end of the month, 20th, we're going to be at Morley Farms and that's for our drill operators training and that will be repeated again on the 21st of February at Rise Home Campus Lincolnshire Showground. And if you want to book either of those events, please go to the BBRO website, www.bbro.com.
bbro.co.uk forward slash events. And for those of you that are collecting the basis points this month, again, one point and it's cp forward slash 131907 forward slash 2324 forward slash K. That leads me to wish you a very happy Christmas and thank you for listening. Thank you.